0: Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market.
1: So We support founders that are building companies at the intersection of deep tech, path to a billion dollars in revenue if everything goes really well, path to massive positive social or environmental impact.
0: Thess Bannon is the founding partner of 50 Years, a $50 million early-stage deep tech fund. Stess is a longtime advocate and campaigner who turned to technology and investment to solve the world's biggest problems. A graduate of Y Combinator, Stess was named twice to the Forbes 30 under 30 list for social entrepreneurship. Stess believes business is about more than just profit, and 50 years has supported a range of startups shaping the world for the better. From microbe engineering for sustainable chemistry, to small satellites for low-cost global internet coverage, to clean meat. In this episode, Stess talks about how Silicon Valley needs to go back to its roots to lift all sectors, including food, industry, and healthcare, to the digital age. He covers the challenges PhDs face when they become founders to translate their research on the characteristics of ideal founders. He shares his approach to opportunistic investments in deep tech, the benefits of portfolio network effects, and why biology is having its internet time. Finally, we discuss the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on venture and the silver lining of how such global events might give rise to major scientific advances in a compressed time frame. Thess, great to have you. Great to be here. We almost met in Paris about a month ago, then the global pandemic happened. The best laid plans. (laughs) Maybe to get started, I understand you have a long experience with campaigning and strong causes, then you went into tech, now you're running a fund. If you can tell us about this background and uh, why you picked deep tech to start investing.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I was always on the impact track when I was young. And this was uh, largely inspired by my mother, who would do things that were actually quite small, but seemed like a really big deal to a 10-year-old. Like if she thought a law was unjust, she'd get our neighbors together to write our local congresswoman. Or if we were ever standing in line at the supermarket and someone was cutting in front of someone else, she'd march over and say, excuse me, I saw that this person was in front of you, which I thought was superhero stuff. And then when I was 12, we were living in a house that was powered by propane gas, and there was a leak and a spark, uh, an explosion. And and she was in the house at the time and, and got tossed up and hit the ceiling and hit the floor. And was left with nerve damage and post-traumatic stress and brain damage, and it was permanently disabled after that. Um, And and so what would happen is she would see the same injustice she saw before but wouldn't be able to do what she used to do about it. And so she'd get sad, so I'd get sad. Um, And so I basically just started to do those things for her. If we were upset about a law, I would write a local congresswoman, I'd show her, it'd cheer her up, cheered me up, problem solved. And then at some point I realized that there were hundreds of millions of people in the world who were in the same sort of boat that she was and that they were faced with injustice but couldn't do anything about it themselves. And I basically decided right then and there that I wanted to be their proxy like I was her proxy. And when I was young, I had no notion of using capital markets or technology to solve big problems. And so did what most kids do. I started volunteering in nonprofits and political campaigns, ended up working in the world of politics, helped run campaigns for people running for Senate, worked for the current governor of Connecticut, worked for Barack Obama on his first campaign. And basically from day one in that space, was super frustrated with the tech tools that were used on the campaigns that I cared about. My coping mechanism was to whine a lot about it, (laughs) um, which worked great for me, uh, but turns out didn't work so well for the people around me. And I basically annoyed everyone in my life and started to hear my friends, family, and coworkers say, you know what, Seth, stop complaining and just do something about it. And I said, "Oh, do something about it. That's an interesting idea. Um, so I knew how to code from high school, teamed up some friends, we built a tool, and that tool ended up becoming a startup. One of our early customers' friends saw the tool and and asked for instruction and said, can I, can I invest in your startup? And we were like, oh, our, our startup. We have a startup. Great. That turned into a seed round, quickly realized we had no idea what to do with that money, furiously started looking for mentors. We literally pulled a list of the Yale alumni database filtered by anyone that had founder or co-founder in their title and emailed them all, please help. Just raised money, don't know what we're doing. Most of them were founders of hedge funds or something like that and couldn't help. But there was one guy, we were supposed to have a half hour conversation with him. It turned into a two and a half hour long conversation. His name was Michael Seibel. At that time, he was just a YC alumni. He's actually now the CEO of Y Combinator. And so he told us about YC, we applied, we got in. And then by the end of that program, we had some largest nonprofits in the world paying us a lot of money a month. And so we were able to raise a few million dollars more from Founders Fund and other really great funds. And a few things happened there. So one, I got incredibly seduced by the speed and the scale of Silicon Valley. It was incredible to see how you could go from idea to impacting hundreds of millions of lives so quickly. I love the nonprofit and political world, but they don't move fast. On the flip side, I started to become a little bit, let's say, not super excited by a lot of the things that people in Silicon Valley were focusing on. I would meet a brilliant machine learning engineer and you'd ask them what they were doing and they would say, oh, I'm spending my days and nights trying to squeeze a few more cents out of an ad impression on Facebook or whatever. And so those two things just conflicted in in a really interesting way. And through my entrepreneurial journey, I also started to get frustrated with the types of capital that was available to entrepreneurs. So we had every intention of building a billion dollar company, but the reason we wanted to do it was because we thought that we could have a really positive impact on society by getting this tool into the hands of a lot of great nonprofits and political campaigns. But when we talked to investors we found that they largely fell into one of two buckets. Either they genuinely cared about our mission. These are impact investors. Those people knew nothing about startups or how to close enterprise deals or how to hire great employees or how to build a great product. And we needed help because we were first-time entrepreneurs. Or investors fell into bucket number two. This is, you know, Sand Hill Road where they knew a lot about those things and could help in all those ways. But at the end of the day, saw business as a purely cash-on-cash return game. And we really wanted investors at the intersection of those two worlds. And I would talk to other money entrepreneurs who would say the same thing. And so in the interest of scratching my own itch and solving my own problem again, teamed up with my partner Ella and started 50 years about five years ago now. Um, and so we support founders that are building companies at the intersection of three circles on a Venn diagram. Circle number one is deep tech, which for us just means you probably need a PhD on the team to pull it off. Circle number two is path to a billion dollars a year in revenue if everything goes really well. And circle number three is path to massive positive social or environmental impact. And you asked why deep tech, and it's just simply because that's where we see the most interesting innovation coming from these days. If you look at software, software has had an amazing run over the last 20 years, but so much about building a software company has been abstracted away. That software development is now largely commoditized. It's so easy that two high schoolers over a weekend can build and launch a SaaS application with paying customers. And that's been amazing for innovation. But what it means is that most of the easy wins have already been won. Most of the low hanging fruit has already been picked. It also means that if you happen to have a good idea, you're going to have dozens of competitors overnight because the barriers to entry are so low. Whereas if you look at what's happening in deep technology, it looks a lot like software did in the 90s. And so we think there's just a lot more room for innovation in that space. And that's why we focus almost entirely on deep technology.
0: Deep tech being the connection between also the physical world and the software world that requires a broad array of competences and that makes it, as you mentioned, a barrier to entry, but also a very attractive market. Within deep tech, there are some funds that tend to specialize in one particular thing. Like I just got a contact from a a space-focused fund, Aerospace. Which sectors are you covering and what decided you to go into those in particular?
1: Yeah, so we are very, you could call us opportunistic. So a lot of venture capitalists, they sit in a room, they whiteboard out where they think the world is going. And they say, OK, we want to invest 20 percent of our fund in this, 30 percent in that and 70 percent in that. That adds up to 120 percent. So good for that fund. But uh, we uh, we're much more, I would say, humble. We think that the only people in the world that really know what the future is going to look like are the people that are building it. Right? The PhDs in the lab that are breaking through this technology, the entrepreneurs that are building the next iconic company. And so we take the approach of trying to make sure that we are meeting those people, listening to their vision for the world. And then, of course, we have to do our own gut check to see if we agree with it. And so we actually don't say we want to support this many companies in synthetic biology or this many companies in space technology or this many companies in quantum computing. We just listen to what the greatest innovators on earth are telling us and then we back them if we believe what they're saying. That said, we would notice that a lot of those innovators are in certain industries, right? So synthetic biology is about a third of our entire portfolio. uh, And I think there's a good reason for that. Alternative protein and new food is a huge part of our portfolio. And healthcare and health tech in general is a huge part of our portfolio. And I think the main reason is that if you look at areas where right now, if you wanted to build a company at the intersection of can make a lot of money and can do a lot of good, Those three areas are very, very, very attractive.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And some of the barriers to entry, particularly in terms of cost, have gone down, right? We're having this conversation a bit earlier. You mentioned synthetic biology as a good example.
1: It's exactly right. So first, I think it it might make sense to sort of define like what is synthetic biology. And so, you know, for us at a high level, synthetic biology is about applying engineering best practices to speed up the design, build, test cycle in the construction of new or existing biological systems, specifically the reprogramming or construction of new microbes or new enzymes to do cool things. If you look at where that industry is, it looks a lot like where software was in the 90s. So in the 90s, you had to buy your own servers, you had to set them up at your headquarters, and then you had to write a lot of very intense code to get them to work. If you wanted to say launch a web application, then in the early 2000s, you could actually lease time on someone else's server, but you had to write a hell of a lot of hard code to get it to work. Now you can deploy on AWS with code that you literally copy and paste from Stack Overflow, which is why those two high school students can just build and launch that SaaS application. We feel like synthetic biology is starting to make that transition from own your own server stage to run on least servers, even though it's still really complex stage. We have little doubt that over the next several decades, we're going to get to the AWS stage. At some point, folks will be able to do their metabolic engineering in code, hit submit, have their engineered yeast tested on cloud fermenters, and the whole thing will be in the cloud. I don't think we're anywhere close to being there yet, but it's coming. And if you started backing internet entrepreneurs, when that transition from own your own servers to lease time on other people's servers was happening, you would do really, really well. And so we think that the next couple decades of the synthetic biology industry are going to be incredibly exciting
0: with some of those early results in the food industry already.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing them across all sorts of industries. We're seeing them in biomanufacturing, which is offering a potential solution to the climate crisis by allowing for the production of chemicals sustainably or or for the manufacture of animal products without slaughter. We're starting to see results in biotherapeutics, which might make possible curing the incurable by saving lives while also reducing healthcare spend. I think we're gonna see some really interesting things in bioremediation where we might be able to mitigate the effects of environmental catastrophes like oil spills or other toxic accidents. We might even be able Able to for the first time store all of the world's knowledge and information by putting it all in dna thereby not losing any knowledge which is really cool so i think there's a, a huge number of incredibly exciting stuff happening in the world of synthetic biology
0: that's exciting and sosb we also sold on that we're also running a biotech accelerator program we actually have quite a few co-investments
1: i think yeah we're both supporting memphis meats geltor catalogue dna lots of great overlap
0: i'd like you to also tell uh, the story of your company's name yeah, so our firm uh, is called 50 Years,
1: and it's based off of a 1931 essay by Winston Churchill called 50 Years Hence. In this essay, he predicts synthetic biology, he predicts genetic engineering, he predicts nuclear power, he predicts cell phones. It's just full of incredible deep technology insight. And then in the second part of the essay, he talks about how because the pace of technological change is advancing so rapidly there's a real chance that we accelerate really fast, but in the wrong direction. Therefore, a technologist must take a principled approach to their work. And so for the things we like to support, which are deep tech companies that can make a lot of money and do a lot of good, it's just the perfect essay. And so we actually just stole the 50 years from 50 years hence. It's a really incredible essay. If you Google 50 years hence, you can find it. Make sure you find the one that has the extended paragraph. So this was published, I believe, in Popular Mechanics, and they made him cut out the paragraph where he said that in 50 years, women will be freed from the burden of childbirth because will end up growing embryos in a lab and children will be born artificially that way. And Popular Mechanics was like, whoa, 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 Winston, that's too far. But interestingly enough, last year, we birthed a lamb in an artificial womb for the first time. So even that, he might have gotten right, although he got the timeline wrong.
0: Close enough on the timeline. (laughs) I was lucky enough to stumble upon that version of the essay after reading about your company story. He also wants, as you mentioned, about having principled approach, because, for example, with the artificial worms, he said maybe in some places with authoritarian governments, you could actually alter the embryo's growth so that you get basically brave new world.
1: That's right. (laughs) That's right. He did. Yeah. I think there's something very profound to his call to technologists, Thinking about the principles of the technology they're developing. I think especially in Silicon Valley, we've sort of lost our way a bit where in the chase of keeping people on site longer and on the chase of delivering more ads and getting people to buy more crap they don't really need, people are developing technology without thinking, what is the impact this technology will have on society? And I think that you've seen globally a sort of tech lash, right? You've seen a lot of people saying, man, I don't feel good when I spend time on Facebook. And if Silicon Valley and technologists across the world don't start to take a more principled approach to the way they develop technology, I think we might see that continue. And so I've been really happy recently in the last couple of years, there seems like there's a resurgence of Churchill's way of thinking about this, and I hope we see a lot more of it.
0: And it looks like with the current pandemic, people are reminded that the physical world exists and that we have to deal with it and that all the healthcare systems and the logistics and all those things are at risk. Absolutely. I think
1: in times of crisis, people start focusing less on things people want and more on things people need. And so I do think that with COVID upon us, people have started to say, am I contributing to a real need in the world? And you see a lot of people that have been working on more frivolous things, pivoting
0: their lives to working on on more important things. And I hope we see that trend continue. Let's go into the current difficulties there are in deep tech. One of them you already mentioned is the lack of interest of some investors in those categories. But what do you see are the main difficulties for founders in the early stages from creating the company, raising the first rounds, getting customers? Maybe you can also talk about the interest of LPs also about the sector in deep tech. From a founder perspective, founding a deep tech company requires
1: a tremendous amount of technical expertise. And so oftentimes you see in the founding teams that they're all PhDs. And the transition from PhD to founder is actually far more difficult than the transition from sophomore dropout to founder. Because a lot of the muscle memory, a lot of the habits that make you a great researcher make you a bad founder. (laughs) And so it's this process of unlearning a lot of the habits of academia and then sort of learning how to be an entrepreneur. Just one example among many in the world of academia, when you make a statement, you qualify that statement in the 15 ways that it might be wrong. As an entrepreneur, you're supposed to be storytelling, you're supposed to be pitching. And if you're an investor meeting and you make a, a statement and then you say, now let me just qualify all the ways in which I might be wrong about this, you're going to lose the momentum of the story. You're going you're to start to see people fall asleep. And so you need to sort of learn to even deliver information in a different way. And so I think that is one of the things that prevents a lot of innovation from getting translated is the fact that this transition is so hard. So one of our favorite things to do as a firm is to help PhDs make that transition. The old model was, okay, if the PhDs make something that works, we'll just hire a CEO to run the company, right? And interestingly, this is the model that used to be the default in the world of software. So in the 90s, if you had the nerds, aka the developers that built something, you get an MBA. Exactly. Yeah. The VCs would invest. And then the first thing they do is they would hire a real man. And it was always a man. And the MBA would become the CEO and he would manage the nerds. And that was just the way it worked. That was the default way it worked. And then at some point, people realized, you know what? The nerds can learn how to be the CEO. And it turns out it's much easier for someone who is innovative to their core to learn business than it is for someone who knows a lot about business to learn how to be an innovator. And so now in the world of software, the default is the developer can learn what they need to learn to be the CEO. But for some reason, in the world of deep technology, especially in the world of biology, the default is still, we're going to hire a CEO. And so we think that that paradigm needs to change. And so one of the things that we think can help deep tech break out most of all is saying to a PhD, if you want to be the CEO, you can learn everything you need to be the CEO. It's going to be a hard journey, of course. But if you make that journey, the company will be way more successful. Um, so that's one thing. In terms of what's necessary to make that journey, I think storytelling is probably the number one thing that we see that PhDs just naturally lack and that we like to help them with. So the other things that are hard in deep tech, there are a lot of firms that will like the founders, they'll like the vision, they'll like the market, and they'll say, we don't know how to diligence this technology. And so as a founder, you should try and make it as easy as possible for a firm to run that technical diligence. And so what does that mean? It might mean that you find technical experts in your network that have great resumes, you get them familiar with your technology, so that when a VC is ready to invest, except for the diligence, you can just connect those people and say, hey, we actually have someone who's from a top institution who's familiar with our technology, they'd be happy to give you their opinion on this, right? So make it as easy as possible for a VC to get to yes. And this is something, of course, that also applies in in sales. And then from impediments from the world of capital, what I just talked about is a real problem, right? There are a lot of firms now that realize that from a lot of these deep tech domains, there's going to be an incredible amount of value created, but they just don't know how to conduct these diligences. They don't have the right networks. And so we see all the time companies in our portfolio will get straight to the partner meeting and the firm will say, oh man, we love the market founders product. How do we diligence this? And we sometimes say, hey, we can share our diligence or we can connect to someone in our network, but that doesn't scale very well. And so one of the initiatives that we're actually running that we hope will fix that is an initiative called PhD2VC where in the same way we want to make a lot more PhD CEOs, we want to get a lot more PhDs into the world of venture capital. And so we're actually running a program with events and a curriculum that helps PhDs learn about venture. And then it culminates with us connecting those PhDs to a bunch of firms so that either those firms can hire those PhDs or at least have some that they can pick up the phone and call on a consulting basis when they're looking at diligencing a company. And so we think that if the world of academia and the world of VC connect more intimately, we might see a lot more capital flowing into these potentially really valuable companies.
0: It's really interesting what you're saying. Like there's one phrase I really like. It's uh if you want to change people, change people. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Funny one. But basically what that's what you're doing is saying, okay, if the current VCs can't really understand what PhDs are saying, let's make some PhDs VC. Exactly.
1: And it's critically important because I just really believe that a lot of the technology that's going to be societally valuable and economically valuable over the next couple decades is going to be deep technology. And VC has largely lost its way. Most VCs right now want to back a SaaS application that already has good growth and that they think will continue to grow more. They don't want to take technology risk, which is unfortunate because venture capital started off as deep tech only. You know, Silicon Valley got its name because the original companies that were started and funded here were semiconductor companies. And so we think venture capital needs to be brought back to its roots because it'll not only be societally beneficial, but that is where the huge financial successes will
0: be. Maybe one thing that's also reducing the attractiveness of deep tech at the moment is that there hasn't been that many exits in the sector compared to the many software exits.
1: I'll push back a little bit because I think, you know, Genentech was a great success story from a long time ago. Tesla was a great success story from not that long ago. Companies like Beyond Meat and the Food System are obviously big success stories. And so there have been a lot of deep technology successes. I agree if you're looking at something, say, like synthetic biology, right? You know, you can't point to that many big successes. However, this line of reasoning is a trap because I could have made that exact argument about the Internet in the 1990s. Right? If you're in the mid-90s saying, the internet, oh my God, it's going to be huge. There's going to be so much innovation. There's going to be so many huge companies. I could have said, yeah, but show me the exits.
0: Show me the exits from the 80s.
1: Exactly, and you would have said, no, no, you don't understand. It, it couldn't have happened then. Now's the time, right? And so for an industry like synthetic biology, now's the time because there have been fundamental advancements in the tech infrastructure. If you look at obviously things like the cost of sequencing, which have gone from $3 billion for a human genome to $200, right? And 10 years to two days, if you look at the ability to order your DNA constructs from Twist and have them delivered to your door in a couple of weeks. If you look at the ability to even do something like a shared wet lab, where you used to have to build your own. If you look at things like CRISPR, which enable you to cheaply and accurately edit genomes, these technologies did not exist 10 years ago, right? And so, of course, you weren't going to have seen a huge number of synthetic biology IPOs 10 years ago. So we think that that is going to change over the next 10 years. And every single time, if you time an industry right, someone will be able to make that argument, which is that, hey, I haven't seen a lot of historical success. By the time you see a lot of historical success, you're too late
0: something else now maybe if you want to give a few examples because you have some great companies in your portfolio in what you describe around the food it's not just that technology is possible it's that there's also some kind of societal change on on demand for some of those products maybe if you want to go through a few examples
1: yeah sure happy to our favorite thing to talk about is our portfolio so if you look at this sort of new food space from a high level we love massive markets with little innovation that are deeply broken let's just take meat and see if it sort of checks off those boxes. So there's a type of meat called chuck. Chuck is meat from the shoulder of a cow. Sounds like a very niche thing, right? Oh, meat from the shoulder of a cow. The chuck market in the United States is $6 billion a year. And I'm only saying that to show you how massive this industry is, right? It's a multi-trillion dollar industry, just meat alone. So is it massive market? Yes, check. Okay, so is it innovative? Um, let's just look at something like meat production. Nearly 10,000 years ago, Homo sapiens began domesticating animals for meat, milk, and hides. And while the scale and sophistication of effort has grown since our ancestors in Mesopotamia began domesticating goats, the basic formula hasn't really changed at all. We selectively breed animals for traits we want. We feed them for months to years, and then we slaughter them and cut out the things we want to either eat or wear, sometimes after extracting their breast milk for a time. Uh, So functionally, we're using animals as technology to take plant protein inputs and convert those outputs into things we like to eat, drink, or wear. And we've been doing it for almost the exact same way for 10,000 years. So is it innovative? You know, no, check. Uh, In the food space in particular, another example of this is if you look at the percent of annual net revenue spent on R&D by Amazon, it's 13%. Kellogg, it's 1%. By Google, it's 15%. By Nestle, it's 2%. By Microsoft, 14% by Pepsi, 1%. The big companies are not innovative companies. They're not going to get us out of this. Okay, so it's not innovative. Is it broken? We are both failing to feed the world affordable nutrition, even with the scale of factory farming, while at the same time in the developed world, making people sick because the food we're feeding them isn't healthy. And we're destroying the climate because the methods of production are not sustainable, right? And if you look at something like cultured meat, an Oxford life cycle analysis showed that it would lead to 96% less greenhouse gas emissions, 45% less energy use, 99% less land use, and 96% less water use, right? So it is the perfect space to be disrupted in that it is a massive market, it is deeply broken, and the existing players are just the least innovative players on earth. And so that's one of the reasons we really like it. So one of the companies that we were very fortunate to support since the seed round was a company called Memphis Meats. So they're essentially growing meat the exact same way it would grow in the animal, just outside the animal, right? It's the exact same process of cell division, but they take up less land, use less water, less emissions, and no animals need suffer. So this is a radically better way of growing meat. In the same vein, we've backed a company called Geltor, which is doing the same thing for gelatin. So gelatin is currently made by taking the remains of a slaughtered animal, the carcass of an animal, throwing it into a giant acid vat, the bones sink to the bottom, the hair dissolves in the acid, and after a couple of weeks, the middle layer is extracted and put into things like gummy bears and marshmallows to make them chewy. Mm-mm. Gel just engineers cells to directly crank out collagen and gelatin. So it's a much cleaner, much nicer, much more tunable production method, We've supported a lot more companies in that space. We think that every single product from animals will soon be made directly with biology.
0: I guess the question that investors would have is when? What are the timeframes we're looking at for these type of things? So meat is one thing. Some companies have started with meat and then decided to pivot to some other things. Gelto itself, they're targeting down the road gelatin and other opportunities with high quality human collagen. What do you see at timeframes for those?
1: It's a great question because, you know, in venture in particular, if you're right, but too early, you're going to lose all of your money. (laughs) Right. And if you're right, but too late, you're not going to make any money. And so you have to be both right and right on the timing. And so I think that this is all gonna come much faster than anyone thinks. I fortunately can't share exact numbers from Memphis Meats, but let's just say I was blown away as someone that's been supporting that company for a few years at their most recent update in terms of the cost that they're at and in terms of the timeline for bringing it to market. Geltor actually, there's already a cosmetic sold in Korea that has their cell-based collagen in it, which is incredible. So they're actually already on market. They're already replacing gelatin made through traditional methods. And all these companies you know, will be taking Taking a cost curve approach, that's very similar to what Tesla did, right? So as a company is producing small amounts, their costs are going to be much higher, right? And then as they produce more, they get economies of scale and their costs drop. And so all of these companies will take the Tesla approach. And and what I mean by the Tesla approach is Tesla started by building and selling roadsters for a million dollars each, small number, right? And then they used that capital to increase their scale, to drive down their costs. And then they launched the Model S, which was $80,000, still pretty expensive, but way less than a million and they use that capital to increase their scale, drive down their costs, and they launch the Model 3, which is $30,000, right? Now they're getting close to sort of a mass market car. And so you'll see the same thing from companies like Geltor, companies like Vitro Labs, or companies like Memphis Meats, or companies like Emergy, where they will initially be selling to sort of the, the Michelin-starred restaurants of their, of their industries. And then as they increase their scale and drive down their costs, they're going to get to the mass market. And we always want to see in every single one of our companies a path to winning purely on cost, Cost, quality, or convenience, right? So we actually have something we call the Mr. Burns test. So Mr. Burns is this prototypical greedy industrial capitalist from the Simpsons, right? He doesn't care about anybody but himself and his own bank account. We want to see a company that has a path to building a product that Mr. Burns would buy. Not because it's sustainable or healthy or anything. No, because it tastes great, because it's cheap, and because it's convenient. And all of these companies, the beauty of them is that they have a clear path to winning purely on cost, quality, and convenience.
0: That's great. And it makes a lot of sense, particularly what you describe in, uh, in biology and food. You also have some investments in other things that have very unique path to market, like in health tech or med tech. Those typically have regulatory hurdles. And as kind of a broad spectrum deep tech investor, how do you deal with these type of investments in your approach and the timeframes they might have?
1: One of the things that we're trying to prove Is that you can invest in these deep tech companies that are making the world genuinely better and get better returns than you would if you invested in a vanilla venture fund, right? And so it's actually really important for us to show that these companies can generate returns on a venture time horizon. Why is that important? It's it's important because say we had a longer horizon fund and we did really well. Then people would say, ah, you know what? It's not because you're backing these companies that are doing good. It's because you had a longer fund life. Maybe that's why you did well, right? So we actually structure everything we do as a fund to look exactly like another vanilla venture fund. The only thing that we do different in terms of our focus is we back companies that are solving these big problems with deep technology. And so it's actually really important that our companies are able to mature to the point where they generate some financial returns within a, you know, 10 year plus two fund horizon. And what that means for people that aren't familiar with ventures, typically venture funds have a 10 year life cycle. uh, And then you typically get two one year extensions, and then you have to start returning things to your LPs. Um, And so it's important because you need to back companies that can start to generate financial returns, either in the form of selling or IPOing within that time horizon. So it's very important to us that we see a path to generating massive financial returns over that time. And so we definitely take a lot of time to understand the regulatory path forward, but that is something that we genuinely believe if you're building a better technology that's safe and improves health, you'll get approved. A lot of VCs complain about organizations like the FDA. Every single interaction we or our portfolio companies have ever had with the FDA, they've come across as very, very considerate people who are just trying to do the best they can and who are very willing to work with new technology companies to figure out a path to approval. Of course, they care a lot about making sure that products are safe, right? And of course, they move slower than a startup would want because they're a government organization and a startup is a startup which moves at the speed of light. But we actually don't really see that as a hurdle to companies that are building truly valuable technologies.
0: And in terms of exits, do you think that the path for many of those companies that kind of pioneering the categories, do you think that might be toward IPOs? Do you think that will be M&As? Because in tech, a lot of the M&As happen with other tech companies. But when you're doing like food things, that's maybe hard to imagine. So what's your understanding regarding exit path?
1: Sure. we don't We don't use the word exit because often, even when a company gets sold or IPOs, the founder journey still continues, right? And so we always want to use language that is empathetic to founders. But basically, companies can return capital to VCs either through M&A, so they sell to a larger company, or they IPO. We have a very strong preference for founders that want to build independent companies that become institutions, largely because we've seen so often that when a larger company acquires the technology of a startup, it doesn't fulfill its vision because large companies don't have the vision of the founders. And typically, the founders don't like working at the large company. And so they typically leave after a little while. And then the technology maybe languishes and never never really fulfills the vision. So what we want to see at the end of the day is companies that are solving fundamental problems and generating massive financial value by doing it. And we think the best way of doing that is by having the founders run that company indefinitely. And so we always have a very strong preference for founders that want to provide liquidity to people through an IPO where they continue building the company just in the public markets.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree that acquisitions very often turn out not great, mostly because there's kind of a culture clash and the culture is so different because one is uh, you a know, food tech company and the other one would be maybe a food company, traditional food company. A bit more than a year ago, we actually run a series of events around startup exits and acquisitions. And one of the sessions was uh, with John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco. So it's quite an interesting fellow because he's done about 180 M&As for Cisco that was core to their strategy. And a big part of it was figuring out, of course, who to buy, but also figuring out the culture compatibility Mm -hmm. and also finding an exciting career path for the founders of the company they would acquire within Cisco. Oh, wow. Uh, They seem to have narrowed a pretty good playbook around that because at some point, about a third of the leadership of Cisco was from acquisitions. Wow, that's incredible. So you can imagine there was like dozens of CEOs running around the company, actually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would say that would make Cisco an incredible outlier. Absolutely. uh, Because the vast majority of large companies are just not able to create create an environment where an entrepreneur can thrive.
0: One of the things he said was that they were very careful of acquiring companies that had similar culture because they didn't believe they could really change the culture of another company. I'd like to discuss a bit about your process also around deep tech investments. So how do you identify the companies or how do they find you? And how do you ramp up knowledge in the sectors you're not familiar with? What kind of network or process have you built around that?
1: When we think about innovation flow and our sort of process for supporting new founders, uh, one, we want to make sure that wherever the world's top, most ambitious innovators are, we're sort of embedded in those networks as much as possible so that we can hear about their vision for the future to see if we might be a good partner to help them fulfill it. Once we meet a team, typically the first step is just going over the team itself, which is at the seed stage, of course, 80% of it, whether or not we think they have the passion to pull off the vision of the company, whether or not we think they have a personal connection to the problem that they're trying to solve solve, whether or not we think to the type of people that can get kicked in the face and knocked down 10 times and then get up 11 times, all the sort of typical, like, are these just great founders, which is super important. We'll then dig into the impact thesis. So do we actually believe that this is going to make the world a much better place, that we can all be proud of supporting this company and building this company? We'll dig into the market. Do we believe that this can generate huge financial returns? Um, We have a very strong preference for an if they build it, they will come type of model where there's no real business model innovation. It's just obvious that, oh, yeah, if you can do that technologically, then obviously the market's going to be there. So the thing we really like to take is technical risk. If we check off those boxes, then typically we on the team, myself, my partner Ella or Shao who works with us, we'll start to read the relevant papers ourselves just to start to understand what are the big questions, what labs are working on things. We'll go through with Google next to us and read the papers. We'll highlight things. We'll mark things up. And then we'll have another conversation with the founders and we'll just present them with our learnings after you know four hours of research. And mainly what we're looking for there is that we haven't surprised them. Right? If I say, oh, what do you think about what Christina Smolke's lab is, is doing on this? And they say, say Smolke is working on this? That's not great. Right? What we want to hear are things like, oh, I think her work is really interesting. Here's why we think our approach is better. And by the way, we're recruiting one of her top postdocs. Right? And then, so if they check that box, then we will bring in someone from our network who uh, has a deep expertise in that domain to do a proper technical diligence. And um, we always have a strong preference for someone who is both a PhD in the space and also an entrepreneur in the space because we found that if you are, say, a professor at a top institution, you are typically actually too conservative to give a proper technical diligence for an early-stage startup because you're only gonna see all the ways in which it couldn't work, and you might not see the narrow path for where it could work. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur who also has a deep technical expertise, you're gonna be able to find that narrow path. And again, we're very comfortable backing something even if we think there's only a 15% chance that the technology could work, right? Because we're supporting a lot of these companies. And that's the purpose of venture is to allow people to take really big swings where there's a high chance of failure, but where if things succeed, it's going to be a rocket ship success and make the world a fundamentally better place and generate massive financial returns. And so that is roughly our sort of diligence process.
0: So you go through the effort of diving into technology, challenging that on the first level with the team, and then bringing in the experts. What you said also about the professors being too conservative generally is interesting because in the previous episode I was discussing with Manish Sengal, who's the founder of a deep tech fund based in India, and he said the exact same thing. Even with experts in general, you'd better have very specific questions because, as you said, they're trained to be very cautious and to disbelieve by default. Absolutely, Yeah. And
1: often, a truly breakthrough innovation is a bit threatening to the existing paradigm, right? For a professor, if there's a breakthrough technology, it might actually obsolete a lot of the things that that professor's lab might have innovated on, right, and is known for. And that can be very threatening, right? And so you also don't want to have someone that could actually be threatened by the technology that they're diligencing to do the diligencing work, which is why we always prefer entrepreneurs that have deep technical expertise.
0: That's a very good point. Could you maybe, among your recent investments, give an example of a company in the space where you were absolutely unfamiliar and explain how that deal happened, how you got in touch with the founders or how they got in touch with you, what got you interested in the company and what convinced you to invest?
1: One of the most recent teams that we supported, literally a week and a half ago, it's a new space for us. And I can share how we met the founders and how we thought about the technology. So I was actually visiting one of our portfolio companies called Octant Bio, which is here in the Bay Area. And the CEO, Sri Kasuri, was meeting with someone and just introduced me and said, hey, you should meet so-and-so. They're a really incredible postdoc from the church lab. He's thinking about starting a new company. And so I said, oh, hey, great to meet you and got to meet you. And then we exchanged information. So slowly started to, to dig in, you know, initially just started to help advise because they weren't even sure if they were going to start a company or not, right? They were in the, hey, this might be a good idea, but maybe we should, you know, stay in academia longer. Maybe we should do this later. And one of our favorite things to do is just to help PhDs that are thinking about starting companies think through that process and decide if it's a good idea or a bad idea and how they would go about it, even if it might never be a company that we partner with, just because it feels good to help cool innovation get translated. And so we spent actually a few months helping them on that process. Uh, we got to know, you know, both founders. We're a sounding board for them. One of the founders ended up coming onto our podcast, which we're launching on the highlights first authors of new bio papers. It's called Translation. And then once they finally decided that they wanted to launch the company, we had been actually pretty familiar with both the team and the technology. And so what we did is we were lucky in that we have backed now four teams coming out of the George Church Lab at Harvard. And so we were able to go to the three other teams that we had backed and talk to the founders and say, Hey, how intimately familiar? Are Are you with these founders and with their technology? And we're actually able to get a really sort of expedited diligence, both on the tech and the team, because when you're working next to someone on a bench, you often talk about what you're working on and the challenges and where you think it might go. And so we were, you know, I think actually had a pretty quick process once they decided that they wanted to start the company and we were able to get to yes and become, you know, the first investor for them, which has been really exciting. And so I can tell you at a high level what they're doing, it's super exciting. They have a high throughput way of testing protein therapeutics in vivo. Right now, you know, the way we develop protein therapeutics is you, you test them in vitro and you try and test a lot and then you take the ones that look good in vitro and then you bring them individually one at a time into a mouse and then you maybe go into a rabbit and then you go into a monkey. And this process is very, very, very slow. It's very, very, very expensive. Um, you can't necessarily even test all the protein therapeutics you want because mouse models testing things in mice is both, you know, cruel and really, really expensive. They actually have a barcoding technology that will allow them to test a thousand different protein therapeutics at the same time in an animal model, which is something that has just historically never been possible before. But they had a breakthrough in protein barcoding technology at the church lab that allows for this. And so we think it's going to really revolutionize the way protein therapeutics and biologics are discovered
0: and designed. Wow. Well, that sounds very impressive. I mean, what you describe about the network effects of your portfolio, both from the deal flow perspective and also from the knowledge and diligence perspective, is probably one of the keys of a long-lasting success.
1: It's interesting because the the way you asked the question was a company in a space where you didn't have um, a lot of expertise, and it took me a while. Luckily, you edited that out, but it took me a while to answer the question because the last. I think four teams that we've supported have been through our network and in spaces that we had deep knowledge of because of other companies we were supporting. So, you know, there's a, a company we're supporting called Astronis, which builds small geostationary satellites to cover the Earth and internet. And they're doing incredibly well, going to compete with SpaceX and a lot of, uh, and Amazon, which is also building these satellite constellations. One of the problems that we became intimately familiar with because of uh, supporting Astronis since the early days is the fact that the user terminals to grab this bandwidth from satellites and turn it into usable internet, no one has solved that. And Astronus was sort of always hoping, I hope someone else solves that because we don't want to have to build that ourselves. And so I was always looking for who's solving that, no one's solving it well and then one of the lead antenna engineers at Astronus ended up spinning out to find a company that is building those user terminals, right? And so that was something where our diligence process was incredibly quick because we were intimately familiar with the technology and a few of the last companies we've supported have had that exact sort of dynamic. And so you're absolutely right. There is this network effect where the deeper you go on these bleeding edge technologies, the more innovators you meet in that space, the more not only do you see what's coming next, but the quicker your ability to analyze
0: if there's a there, there is. Well, hopefully the winners will keep winning this way. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Okay. uh, Just to confirm this space tech company, they're building ground stations. Is that it?
1: That's right. They're building phased array user terminals to collect the data from these satellite internet constellations and turn it into usable internet. So the way we connect to satellites now is typically with a dish. And we point at the satellite because almost all satellites are these super large geostationary satellites, right? That are about a room size. They take $350 million to build and launch, four years to design and launch. And then they're always above the same part of the sky. So you literally just take an antenna and you point it at the satellite. But a lot of these new constellations that are coming online, like the SpaceX one or the Amazon one, are in either low Earth orbit or mid-Earth orbit. And what that means is that they're constantly zipping around the Earth. A satellite is only above any one part of the earth for about seven minutes before it passes over the horizon. And so then when that happens, you need to connect to another satellite that's coming over the horizon. So our existing infrastructure for connecting to satellites won't work because you can't have a physical dish that's just jumping around trying to find all these satellites in the sky. And so you actually need to take what's called a phased array approach to this. But all the phased array solutions that are out there right now were designed for super yachts or planes, and they cost $500,000 each, and they don't have very high bandwidth, and they're just not great. And so this team is building user terminals, which can get down to $100 in cost to basically give these to people so that people can connect to these satellite internets. And their mission is to bring online the 4 billion people that are currently not connected to the internet. Really, really, really inspiring team.
0: Very cool. Okay, so I think that probably is a good set of examples. And maybe to close on the process part, if you want to share some of the lessons you learned about what worked and what didn't across investment in deep tech, like what you wish you knew when you started and figure out on the way.
1: One thing that has just become even more clear over time is that it really comes down to the founders. So I think a mistake we've made is sometimes getting so attached to how cool the technology was or how cool the market was or the impact was that, you know, that's what we focused on. And every time we've focused more on that than we have on the founders, it's been a mistake. And so even in deep tech, I really think that 80% of the decision-making has to be, are these great entrepreneurs, right? Do they have a deep passion for making this real? Are they going to push ahead when times are tough? Are they going to be able to recruit amazing talent around them? Are they going to be able to raise future rounds of funding? All that jazz. It was something we thought we knew when we started, but realized that we still were under-indexing, even having been founders ourselves. And so that's something that we've come to place even more importance on over time.
0: It's very interesting because what you're saying is that in a way, on the technology side, on the market side, there's ways to have some kind of objective view of that. But on the founder's side, on their character, it's like the people meter that you keep tuning and it's very uh, elusive. Have you found what could be good indicators of a good founder? How do you approach that? Is it looking at some of the things they've built before, looking at how tenacious they are just to get a meeting? Or <laughs> What is it? All of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, we want to see people who have broken the rules or made their own rules in their life, right? So if you have just followed the path, the default path that was set in front of you, and you did really, really well in high school, you did really, really well in college, but you only did well in the coursework, right? You didn't do any extracurriculars, you didn't have your own side projects. Those people tend to make amazing hires and tend to not necessarily make great founders, right? The people who even if their GPA was not as high, founded a couple things in college or had some weird, side project that they were super passionate about and launched, even if it went nowhere or had literally had a lemonade stand when they were young. I think those sorts of things tend to actually be good indicators. For sure, there's a meta analysis that's happening in the process in terms of how resourceful people are in in terms of getting in touch with us, in terms of following up, in terms of getting our attention. That's really, really important then you know, I think there just is this sort of intuitive decision that you have to make, right? One of the things that we look for is founders that are magnetic, where as soon as the call ends or as soon as they walk out of the room, we find ourselves wanting to talk to them more and be like, that was so energizing. I I can't wait to to have our next conversation, right? Uh, Because that kind of magnetism becomes really, really important when you're thinking about recruiting a great team or even trying to close an enterprise sale or get press or any of these things.
0: Those are really good characteristics. Like if I summarize a bit what you said, it sounds it's like magnetic, resourceful doers.
1: Yes, exactly. Add one more magnetic, resourceful, resilient doers. That is the key combination. And then, in terms of our tactics, I would say the question that we ask, probably more than any other fund, is why? Just simple why. You know, everything from like, oh, I, I decided to study microbiology. Oh, why'd you study that? I decided to go work for uh, Pfizer. Why'd you decide to work for Pfizer? You know, I decided to move to South Dakota with my family. Why did you decide to do that? We just ask why, why, why? And through asking that question 20 times, you can actually get a pretty good sense of what motivates people, how they think, right? Of what what drives them. And if you can see what has driven someone over the course of their life, you can sort of project and imagine how they're gonna be driven moving forward. That is our most common question is the simple why.
0: This is great because this is probably the most challenging part at early stage because you don't have strong market indicators because there's no sales, there's no numbers. So it's all about people indeed. Let's move on to another topic. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're not sure how long it will last. Uh, some experts say it might just end uh, the end of May. Uh, some others say it will come back. Um, so how is it affecting your activity? And uh, maybe if you can comment on some of your portfolio companies on the, whether it's helping them or harming them.
1: I will say, in terms of how it has impacted us, the last two months have been the most intense of 50 years, for sure, since the beginning almost five years ago. The month of March was seven-day work weeks, you know, 12 to 16-hour days every single day. For sure, almost all of that attention was focused internally. In a crisis like this, it brings about incredible volatility. And so companies that are, say, preparing to raise, you, know, you have to immediately make hard choices that allow you to make it through the volatile times. And so a lot of our time was spent on the phone with our founders, helping them think through those decisions, make those decisions, execute those decisions, and just trying to be there to support them emotionally, because those typically decisions are really hard. Letting someone go because they're not doing their job well sucks having to let people go when they're doing their job perfectly well because of some macro condition outside of your control is probably the hardest thing that a founder has to do. And luckily, you know, the vast majority of our companies were in a good financial position. But if, you know, you were planning on raising in 2020, you had to make those hard choices immediately because capital has really dried up. So that was March. uh, And I would say the first couple of weeks of of April. Luckily, we also have 17 portfolio companies that are actually directly addressing COVID-19 somehow. Everything from developing, you know, multi-antigen mRNA therapeutics to figuring out how to scale up testing capacity to uh, literally just making hand sanitizer and shipping it for free to hospitals. And so a lot of our time was spent helping them build and scale and fund those solutions, which is a lot of work, but more inspiring. And listen, you know, this is an all hands on deck moment. We think that COVID-19 is is our World War II. And that's not a dramatic comparison because if you look at the middle of the road epidemiological models for if nothing was done, you know, a similar number of people might've died. Luckily, countries are going into lockdown. And so it doesn't look like it'll get that dire. But once we drew that comparison, you know, if you look at what happened during World War II, The technology community rallied like never before to win that cause. And if you look at what came out of it, we got mass production of antibiotics. We got blood plasma as a therapeutic for the first time. We got the first flu vaccine. We got radar, the microwave oven, pressurized plane cabins. We got nuclear power, and we got the first programmable digital computer. So in the effort to win World War II, we laid the foundation of technical progress for years to come. And so we think we need that same energy now because not only might we beat back COVID-19, but we might create technologies that are not only societally incredibly valuable, but economically incredibly valuable over the next decades. And so we want to know, you know, what company is going to bring the development of vaccines down from years to months in this crisis, because that technology will be valuable post-COVID. What scientists are going to figure out how to repurpose drugs fast to bring therapies discovery down from months to weeks, because that technology will be incredibly useful post-COVID. And so we think that this is actually an opportunity to build infrastructure that makes us stronger and more resilient over decades to come. And so we've told our portfolio companies, if you think you can contribute, you should.
0: It's very inspiring to hear what you share here. And uh, it's true that in several sectors, it looks like the situation and the lockdown as well are factors that are accelerating either digitization or giving a huge tailwind to health tech sector. It would be really interesting to see uh, once this is over, what are the great innovations and accelerations and breakthrough that came out of this phase.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, obviously, this is a huge humanitarian crisis, but it is important to try and find the silver linings in anything. Right? I think the silver lining in COVID-19 has been how quickly the scientific community and entrepreneurial community has rallied. The genome of the virus was released online in full before the first case was even reported outside of China. And then 63 days after that genome was published online by Chinese scientists, Moderna had a vaccine strategy. And not long after that, that vaccine was actually inhuman for testing. If you told a biologist that timeline five years ago, they would say you're nuts. The fact that we have been able to move so quickly has been truly inspiring. And so we do think that a lot will come out of this, a lot of good.
0: Do you think that the practices of investors might be affected in the long term by this? A number of them are actually doing investments with almost no face-to-face physical presence. Do you see that as kind of a longer-term transformation, even beyond investors in the general business community?
1: I'm going to say... I don't think so. It is true that because of the legal restrictions in a lot of investors are only talking to founders over Zoom, they're making investment decisions over Zoom. I have not met or talked to a single investor that likes that. They all are dealing with it and are forced by necessity to innovate. But I can tell you, I miss meeting our founders face-to-face. I miss meeting new founders face-to-face. I miss the energy of being able to stand up with someone and go over to the whiteboard and start plotting out how the business model might evolve. And so I am so enthusiastic about having face-to-face meetings again. (laughs) And I think a lot of other investors are. And so I actually don't think that this will radically change the way investors and entrepreneurs
0: work with each other. But maybe that will just make people more comfortable in having remote calls and remote presence, maybe lower the threshold of making that acceptable.
1: I think so. I think there'll be an incremental movement towards more Zoom calls. But I don't think that uh, the face-to-face is going to go anytime soon.
0: That's kind of good news. Even though I noted that quote from a Churchill's essay, he figured out that with all the long distance technology and communication, he had this quote. The
1: congregation of people in cities will become superfluous.
0: He saw it coming.
1: He did. He did.
0: <laughs> it's true that that could help release the pressure on real estate and give people, in a way, a higher quality of life thanks to that. But, uh, you know, to be seen. I asked you to see if you had some uh, personal recommendations on what you're kind of reading, watching, doing these days, recent discoveries or all-time favorites.
1: Not doing much outside of work these days, but have been making it a point to run just about every day, which I think is incredibly important in these stressful times to release the cortisol. So that's been really nice, getting out into nature and just
0: running. Did you like running before that?
1: I was a gym guy. I always went to the gym and I would lift heavy things and put those heavy things back down and then lift them again. So I actually wasn't that much a runner, but I've come to really like it. It's great for clearing the mind. We've been checking in with our founders a lot, um, not only on tactical and strategic things, but just emotionally, because these are really difficult times. And so I think it's important for people to support people as people. So we've been doing a lot of that. I have picked up watching The Next Generation, Star Trek The Next Generation during the shutdown. And I got to tell you, I'm loving it. I always thought I was a Star Wars guy. I literally owned a Star Wars encyclopedia when I was young, both the vehicle one and the broader one. So I was a big Star Wars guy. I think I might be a Trekkie. So that's an interesting development. In terms of books, my favorite of all time is a book called Godel Escherbach by Hofstadter, where he presents a theory of consciousness through Godel's mathematics, Escher's paintings, and Bach's music. Some of the things he postulated have been shown to not be true because of advancements in neuroscience, but I actually still recommend it to everyone because it it lights the mind on fire. You cannot read that book and not be inspired to want to know more, to delve into all these topics more. So that one is a classic One of the things that we are really excited to do that we've been doing in the lockdown is pushing forward our podcast. Yeah, we're launching a a podcast called Translation. Be on the lookout for it where we basically have uh, lead authors of great new papers in biology. The day they drop, we're going to have lead author on. We're going to have them summarize the paper. We're going to dig into the actual science and methodology and the people. And then we're going to dig into the translation potential, right? So we're going to ask, okay, great, cool innovation. How does this change the world? How does this change the way doctors treat patients? Is there a company here? Is this something that will be licensed to other company? How does this actually change people's lives? Um, which I think is a question that's not asked
0: often enough. Wonderful. I'll make sure to link to the podcast in the description as well, as soon as it's ready. Beautiful. Now, I'll just uh, thank you for your energy and your fantastic insights. Thanks, Seth.
1: Thank you. This was super fun.
0: Thanks for listening. To know more about Seth and 50 Years, check out their website, Twitter, media coverage, and of course, the prophetic 1931 essay by Winston Churchill titled 50 Years Hence. Subscribe now for future episodes. Follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV, or visit our other podcasts Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross Border Internet.